We're hearing a song with words of the German-language poet Paul Celan, performed by the acclaimed choir The Crossing from the ensemble's Celan Project. With a nod toward poetry, we might take a cue from Paul Celan for insight into how it is that we're so moved by the music-making of The Crossing. As it happens, John Donne of Notre Dame develops the phrase passing over in his writings. He contends that the power of poetry has to do with this passing or crossing over, with entering sympathetically into another person's standpoint, or even a bird, a tree, a stone, and in resonating with the images, visual, sonic, or otherwise, and the feelings they elicit, Perhaps in crossing back, we might have a fresh sense of the world in all its complexities, its sufferings, and its joys, enriched and maybe even changed. Donald Nally, artistic director of The Crossing, believes that's possible. Change is possible. John Donne contends, by following the meridian, as Ceylon calls it, the great circle that circles the earth, that leads from one human being to another, we come back again to ourselves, our starting point, and become like a poem, a presence in the present. A poem, Ceylon says, is one person's language become shape, and essentially a presence in the present. Dunn says, I follow the meridian by passing over to other persons and coming back ever and again to myself. And as I do so, my language becomes shape. I enter into communion and communication. I am incommunicado without means of communication, in solitary confinement, until my life becomes a journey, until I begin crossing the bridge of sighs that goes from heart to heart. And maybe that's all part of it. Because the singers of The Crossing are so skilled and filled with passion for their music, and because the composers they collaborate with are so intensely talented, when they invite us as listeners to cross over into the sound spaces they're creating, we find ourselves resonating in some compelling way with the sonorities, harmonies and dissonance, the rhythms, and these oral stories surrounding us. And when Donald Nally tells us about the ensemble's recent album, Carols After a Plague, he uses Paul Celan-like language, unwittingly, no doubt, to describe the song collection's lasting value, comparing it to a cherished ring, reaching back, in a sense, to the shaping that poetry and the arts can do. This carol adventure forms or shapes the way in which he thinks about the world. Having encountered the composers and their unique-to-themselves music, the lyrics, the singers, and their sense of the songs and each other, it seems as if Nali is touched, as maybe we might be, and maybe changed, 
and hopes to be every time he encounters carols after a plague. The Crossing is a Grammy-winning professional chamber choir conducted by Donald Nally and dedicated to new music. It is committed to working with creative teams to make and record new substantial works for choir that explore and expand ways of writing for choir, singing in choir, and listening to music for choir. Many of its over 110 commissioned premieres address social environmental, and political issues. The collaboration that Crossing has with some of the world's most accomplished ensembles and artists includes the New York Philharmonic, the Los Angeles Philharmonic, the American Composers Orchestra, Bang on a Can, and the International Contemporary Ensemble. With a commitment to recording its commissions, the Crossing has issued 24 releases receiving two Grammy Awards for Best Choral Performance and six Grammy nominations. Recently, The Crossing has expanded its choral presentation to film, and The Crossing's Pandemic Response Daily Series, Rising with The Crossing, a series of 72 past live performances with notes by Donald Nally, has been archived by the Library of Congress as an important part of the collection and the historical record. In anticipation of the release this Friday, January 6th, of the CD version of Carols After a Plague, we had a chance to speak by phone with Donald Nally. How did it come to be that you love music and have come to see music as storytelling? Why did that become so important for you all along? Did you have that sense when you were a young musician? I did, but... I hadn't found the way in which I want to tell stories totally. So I worked in a professional opera for 25 years, starting, I guess, when I was around 24. And, um, you know, obviously that's storytelling. <laughs> and the theater and storytelling is really important to me. And it always bothered me that choral concerts often took on, like, this um, mantle of, a heritage that has either comes from the church or the school. And and there's nothing there's nothing wrong with the church or the school, but I felt like adult events, right? Adult arts events are, you know, often often why we go to them is that we want to recognize ourselves in in certain stories even if we don't realize we want that and and you know, when we do recognize we're we're very moved by that and sometimes we're even changed by that. And I do think a piece of music should change us then so it bothered me that they were often these very short pieces of music that weren't connected, and you'd hear a four-minute piece of music, and everybody would clap, and then you hear another four-minute piece of music, and you get a little bit of French, and then, you know, they do some Renaissance music, and maybe a little bit of Brahms, and then some American slave songs at the end of it in, in these arrangements that end with these great big barn-burning endings, and it just didn't ever really <laughs> make sense to me. And I, and I totally understand that it makes sense to lots of other people, and that's fine. It's not a judgment on them. It's to, you asked me about me, and I don't really relate to that. So I set out to try to figure out how to make concerts I would like to go to. And that led to longer pieces, concert-length pieces, or half-concert-length pieces. It led to 
texts that were, you know, not sacred, but about those lives that we live right, right now, right here. And although I know that for a lot of people, the sacred is a part of their lives, it isn't for me. And which is not to say that ritual and spirituality aren't. So, so I eventually evolved into telling stories um, about the world that we live in and, and then commissioning more and more and more of them. And I make it sound like I, I, I did that, and I, I don't feel like that's true. I feel like we at The Crossing, as well as a number of other organizations that I, I've made art with over, the, over my life, we did that together because it took a lot of commitment, you know, from a lot of people to go like, we can do this. And it was never important to me whether the audience was very large. Now, now it's kind of amazing that you, know, you hear from people in other continents that write to say that they really appreciate something that we recorded or something. It's, it's quite astonishing, actually. And that means there were also composers ready and excited about answering the call that you put out. Could we have a piece for this occasion or on this text or however specifically or not you would ask them to join you in creating something new? Well, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of them were already trying to to do uh, and were doing that, but without a lot of venues or avenues to to do it you know it's funny because the crossing in our mission statement it talks about you know changing the way people write choral music sing choral music and listen to choral music and i really think that that you know that sounds the the changing people part maybe sounds a little um performative it's not meant that way um it's just meant that it's an invitation to reconsider what for a few hundred years maybe we've just accepted about how how we do that particular art and and so in post world war 2 you know so-called western music or western classical music guys I don't know these labels are tough but whatever in in that era you know there was a great fracturing of style whereas prior to that this was kind of like if you live in the time of Mozart then you kind of write in this certain style and if you live in the time of Brahms then you kind of write in that you know loosely related to each other. And then Anton Weber dies right after the war and kind of like German music stops dominating everything. And we realize the importance of French music through the beginning of the century. And people just start going like, I want to do my own thing. And they develop their own stuff. And now we live in this incredibly rich time where each and every composer has their own individual voice in a really beautiful and amazing way. And they have their own things they want to talk about. And so, yes, the answer to your question is, yes, they, they are there for the crossing and for me and for anybody else who invites uh, an idea of, look, write what you want and we'll figure out how to do it. Right. You know, I'm not saying like, don't go crazy. Don't write out of the range of a singer, (laughs) but do stylistically write what you want and we'll figure out how to do that. You know, there's another thing I want to say here. I feel like we've, we've now had like uh, a fairly successful democracy for about 250 years, you know, (laughs) recently under siege, but nevertheless pretty resilient. And I feel like, choral musicians and maybe even songwriters to a certain extent failed to notice that uh, the kind of freedoms that a constitution allows you means that you have this great flexibility and, and breadth of topics which you can talk about, which you would couldn't do prior to kind of like a constitutional organization of a, of a people the way, we, the way we have, what we live with. Because there was always some aristocratic person or king or duke or 
church leader or whomever who's going to shut you down and not say, well, you actually can't talk about the Citizens United case at <laughs> um, the Supreme Court because we say you can't. And we can't. And so I feel like in the last couple of decades, I feel like there's been this awakening in choral music of people going like, wait, I can make a piece about extinct birds and the human interaction that leads to it. And I can make, I can set a Eugene Debs text about my commitment to you know, wealth distribution and unfairness. And so that's been really, I feel like I am the most fortunate person because I happen to be working as an artist at the time when that, when the veil lifted about what we can talk about or should talk about in these types of pieces. Let's talk then about the group, because you wanted to make the shift to the ensemble, the crossing itself. It's quite something to hear the crossing, the crossing as it performs in concert or on a recording. But working backwards, we might ask, how did they get there? How did they get such powerful results, make such remarkable music? We read that you're 24 or so singers, many who've been part of the crew since the start. There are people who are passionate about singing and passionate about singing with each other. I don't know, is it a community? Is it a family? Is it, It's an ensemble. I've seen it at least once referred to as the voice, not the voices of. There's that wonderful story that you tell about COVID where you've got that new apparatus. And in a sense, the singers are in their own harmonic cloud. That's the term you all use. How do you talk about the sense of the opposites, the individual voice and the voice that is the crossing, which is larger than the sum of its parts? Um, you know, it's a, it's a really great question because we're an unusual group in that we're, you know, I always say a great choir is not made up of great singers. It's made up of some great singers and, and a combination of people who have some of the following attributes, great voices, great musicality, great artistry great personalities, great sense of drama, you know, and, and the one thing that in The Crossing they all share is a great sense of community, and that is, that is paramount in, in my teaching of my students. I, I always stress it's who you have in the room. If you need six tenors and, you, and, and that sixth person that's available is, is like a bad apple, then go with five, <laughs> because, because it's true that one bad apple can spoil the whole thing. So, so who, who is there is is really important. And, and I think also it's like knowing that you have to be kind of intrepid to enter the zone of learning some of this stuff or, or just having this resilient, like we're about to head into this recording session, five days of recording David Shapiro's Sumptuous Planet, uh, a secular mass, which is all text of Richard Dawkins. And, and the piece itself is so big. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. It's like looking at Mount Everest and going like, I don't think though. So. I don't know. It's like huge. And, and yet, somehow or other, these folks come together and go like, yep, we're going to figure this out. And when you need me, I'll be there. And when I need you, you'll be there. And, and also, I really do think that we all love each other a lot. It's a kind of infectious environment. I mean, I, I do believe that, you know, beware the boss that calls everybody family. <laughs> uh, you have to be careful about that. But I do think of, of the group as, as my quite familial <laughs> And it's because of the trust that it takes, you know, when, when they decide that the composer is telling us to just let loose, um, there just truly really is very few other musical, I don't know, moments that 
I can compare that to in my experience. And I find the same thing is true as when they decide that what the composer is is trying to express here is in a level of extreme vulnerability, you know, no, no veils at all. They similarly reach a, a level of listening to each other in, in which, like, everybody has given over to the whole in a really great way. And so I'm just a facilitator, you know, like, I, I, I don't make the noises, they make the noises, and I get to imagine and you know, sit with scores and go like, well, I think this is the, this is what this means and what that means and make spaces for them to, I guess, feel safe to go crazy. So I, I would say, you know, I would say community is the fundamental thing that makes a great ensemble. You just used the word space in the sense of creating an atmosphere where it's safe to take risks as singers, where the singers can push themselves as far as the music may demand. What about acoustical space? You perform in so many different places and even outside. How do you embrace the spaces you sing in and musical space that may not come from the stones and mortar and the like, if this can be spoken of separately, more like the way you all breathe and exhale and inhale when you do and you don't, drawing us into the musical space that you're creating? You may not realize that you just asked like 20 different questions because it's so, it's a very, very good question because there are so many rich parts of planning and executing that have to do with that, with that topic. You know, I think presentation is everything, right? Because like when you invite people over to your house for dinner or whatever you want, you know, you want them to know that you are really glad that they're there. So you do little things, you know, you use candles and you use the nicer napkins and, and then you, you make something special that day that maybe you wouldn't necessarily have with your husband every day. And, and, and I feel like a, a concert is, is a lot like that, that people are giving up their time and, and, I can't remember whose author it was, as you know, that's like his goal is to not waste the time of perfect strangers. And although most of these people that attend our performances aren't perfect strangers, an awful lot of people that listen to our recordings are. And, you know, I want to make sure that every single moment that they're giving up of their time to our art is time that they feel we really valued, that we, we took into account their, the gift of their time. And so, it's a kind of a weird thing to say that as an introduction to saying that when you imagine a concert, you do imagine the space and you imagine like what it's like to enter it, what's the space feel like, what's it sound like? Are there super titles that are scrolling, telling us something, maybe presenting some like questions or anticipation about what might be coming, you know, what is the lighting tell us? All that kind of stuff. And that changes for every space. It also changes for every piece and it changes whether it's is this a nighttime piece or is it a daytime piece? Is it, is it a winter is it a wintertime piece or is it a summertime piece? And all that stuff I think contributes to essentially, as you say, you know, making space all, all around all around us. Because I you know, I I ask this question all the time, like why do people come to concerts? You know? And I'm really, really picky about what I what I go to because I have so little time that's free in the evenings. I'm, you know, either rehearsing or performing. And so when I do have a night off, I like really, really want to use it productively. Well, what's productive? Well, for me, it's connectivity, right? I want, if I go to something, I, I don't consciously think about this, but sort of subconsciously hope that I'll recognize myself in, in the story that they're telling and, and I'll learn something, I'll be a better person because of it or something like that. So that's kind of like in the background, I think, 
of when I say that space. But that's a different thing than when you were you mentioned Harmonic Cloud. And when we created the forest, and that was created with my assistant conductor Kevin Vondrek, who was who's not assistant in any way in that piece. He was much very much the co-composer of of that piece. You know, we were solving a problem, and almost almost everything we do, I think, in in art is like a it's like a series of trying to solve problems or try, trying to solve challenges. So that big problem there was we we weren't supposed to sing together <laughs> because we because if we did we'd run the risk of killing each other right because we didn't have vaccines yet and and so how do we how do we do that right so I came up with this nutty idea and then our sound designer Paul Vasquez just ran with it of creating each person having their own little, like, cathedral (laughs) in which to sing. And they have their own headset mic, and they have their own six-foot tower speaker, and they have a mixer and a looper. And these speakers could be really close to the listener because there's no fit involved. And the singer can be 25 feet away from the listener and whispering and be heard, even though they're seen in the distance, be heard as if they're right you know, right next to the stage. And that was really important to me. And so what we did was create this piece called The Forest, which is a metaphor for a number of things, and then spread the singers out over, you know, like a third of them, half a mile or something, a third of a mile. And then you walk through the piece. And so they're 25 feet away from you, but you're experiencing them. And then the piece, this harmonic cloud builds and evolves through the experience of The Forest. And then the, the text, the text was, partly drawn from the singer's experience of being completely isolated and having their world stop at the beginning of March 13th of 2020, that everybody, every singer in the world, world came to a complete halt with no, like, ideas <laughs> at first and all their income. And so uh, one of the problems we were trying to solve is how do we create ways in which our singers can make money, you know, literally just do just ba- very basic human stuff. So there's so many aspects to that space, and one of them was the creation of a sound system where we could take our art outside and sing together. True to your dedication to telling stories of this time, you've brought into being a work inspired by the COVID pandemic, Carols After a Plague, and the CD set for release on January 6th. Well, thank you for asking that. I, You know, we really love this, this album. It's, you know, we... We really want to be making a record of the time. There's several things that we, we hope will happen as a result of our work. One is the expansion of, of a repertoire, which is in the language of, of the singers and of our audience. And one is telling stories of our time. And, and one is really making a record of the time. This is, this is what it felt. This is what it feels like. We, we were here, and this is what it felt like to be here. And so I, I was trying to figure out what what December 2021 was going to feel like. And at the time, we thought like, well, these vaccines, they're, they're almost ready, and we're going to be there, and everybody's going to stop, stop with all of this running around and being scared. And so I thought, well, what, why don't we make a project and invite a number of composers of very, very backgrounds, you know, a very diverse group of people with different histories, to respond to the charge, carols after a plague. So what does a carol mean to you? To some person, it goes like, oh, I don't know, you know, it's the jingle bells, right? But, but we don't live in, in a world where people are writing lots and lots of, you know, hearts of herald angels sing. And so 
what does it mean to have a piece that's communal, that maybe could be sung outside, that isn't in 24 parts, but maybe in four or eight parts, right? And then plague. What is it? Because we live with plagues all the time that we don't cure, and, and we probably could. If we set our mind to it the way we set our mind to coming up with a solution to the COVID situation, and we put our minds to plagues like gun violence and wealth distribution and just social unrest and unfairness, and you know the list. You don't need me preaching the list. What would happen? So, so what we said was you can choose your plague or be abstract about it, but write us a five- to seven-minute piece that is your response to peril after a plague. Well, as it turns out, December 2021 was not after the plague. <laughs> uh, it, it was right in the middle of the plague. So there was a little bit of irony in that. But we did record it at that time, and we performed it. And there are these little interludes that we made that kind of string the whole thing together so that instead of having, again, short pieces where you just clap between them and then you forget about their relationship to each other, actually there's these interludes that tie it together and the order of the pieces, which we didn't decide until after we received all of them and started to sing them, they actually do evolve into a kind of background story of their of their own over the 12 pieces. There are actually 14 pieces on the album because Sharonova got very, very excited and wrote a whole bunch. She sent me like eight sketches. It was amazing. She's like, I can't stop. And I'm like, keep going. So she wrote a set of three that she also called Carols After a Plague. And we love them so much that all three of them, they anchor the, the album and that they're at the beginning, the middle, and the, and the end. So they're actually 14 on the album. But at any rate, we're, we just, we feel like it, it, it's at times uh, challenging and at times really heart-wrenching. And I'm glad to ha- have it. It's like my, my mentor died a few years ago and he had this ring that he wore all the time. And it, it's something I can hold on to, to go, that was a time in my life that I'm so grateful for. It, it, it formed the way in which I think about the world. And I feel like Carol's After a Plague is a little bit like that. Carol's After a Plague is something I can hold on to and go, this was a time that was formative for me. I want to be able to hold something that reminds me of the things that I don't want to repeat about it and the things that I, I learned from it. There's a section of the large work you spoke of earlier where composer Kyle Smith sets poetry of Robert Lacks, The Ark in the Sky. Just please say a word or two about Jerusalem. Oh, oh well, you know, it's so, so, so can I ask you why you're asking? Oh, maybe because it's infectious, maybe because every time I listen, I hear something new, and it sounds like it's it sounds like it's maybe it's heaven and earth coming together and somehow the music helps us feel that and the way you render it i keep hearing more in it yeah well kyle smith is a great composer <laughs> and we are so fortunate that he's also a philadelphian <laughs> and it goes back to this um the first recording we ever made was uh, a piece that we didn't commission it was commissioned by Pifro, the renaissance band and and it was a piece that was written for us and for them based on a Lutheran Vespers of the 16th century. And, and Kyle wrote the piece. And we just fell in love with it. And I think the feeling was mutual. And so we commissioned a number of works. And then I finally said, you ready for a full concert line? Because I think I'm ready for a full concert line. And he's like, yep, I'm ready for a full concert line. So because, you know, that's a big undertaking. And 
And it was he who came and said, you know, what about Robert Lack? I'm not really familiar. I know he was friends with Merton, you know, and I don't know that much about. So I went and learned everything you learn about, quickly learn about Robert Lack. And, and I was like, yeah, this is, this, this fits. This is a great halfway point between Kyle and me because, you know, most of the time I want to talk about <laughs> injustices. And he is a very spiritual person. And so those two things come together in Lax's poetry. That's that, that amazing first paragraph of Jerusalem, lovely, sad Jerusalem. It's so, like, captivating and, and, and wonderful. But that piece, we love singing that piece. And actually, you know, I have this a series coming out called Contemporary Voices with a, a publishing company, Easy Shermer. And that's one of the first, that's in the very first releases in this Octava series is Jerusalem because I just love that piece so much and I'd like for many, many more people to know about it and and to sing it because it has, it, it, as you say, you discover something new in it all the time. Even in that poem, without the music, I feel like you discover something new in it a lot when you read. You feel, it depends on how you feel that day and how you're reading it. But then Kyle's music, because it, it's, it's kind of like a dance, you know, that just builds and builds and builds. And it builds to a kind of weirdly joyful melancholy. It's this, um, it's, it's like A.R. Ammon's poem Guide, in which he asks, how can I be sad and glad at the same time? That's how it fits with me. So that the Ark in the Sky is, is, I think, has become kind of a foundational roadmark in in our in our um, history, and I'm I'm very grateful for that piece. Donald Nally, a native of southeastern Pennsylvania who conducts the celebrated Grammy-winning Crossing Choir based in Philadelphia, dedicated to creating and recording new music, especially through commissioning a wide range of composers to collaborate on new works for the Crossing to perform alone or with others. We just heard about their album titled Carols After a Plague, and the CD version will be released this Friday, January 6th, on new Focus recordings. The acclaimed Grammy-winning choir, The Crossing, led by our guest today on Art Scene, Donald Nally, releasing its 29th album, Carols After a Plague, on new Focus recordings. The online version has been available since December 9th, but the physical album will be available this Friday, January 6th. For more information about the Crossing Choir and its recordings, www.crossingchoir.org, crossingchoir.org.
The Crossing, led by our art scene guest Donald Nally, has released its 29th album, Carols After a Plague, on new focus recordings with the physical album CD available January 6th. For more information about The Crossing and its recordings and so much more, crossingchoir.org, crossingchoir.org.